Well, I'm excited to be back uh, talking to you. It is. It seems like it's been just a, a long time since I was actually able to, to preach. It's been several weeks, so I'm glad to get back. And I'm glad to get back on the topic. Uh, if you can remember way back when, uh, in the earlier parts of the summer, we began working through a, a series that we called Transformational Discipleship, and we're kind of getting into part two of that. But I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself just a little bit. Um, so let, let me back up a little bit here. Over the last few months, I've heard a quote from C.S. Lewis several times. I think I read through it once, and then I think maybe even Mike brought it up here when he was preaching a couple of weeks ago. But it's been something that I've been thinking about a little bit, and it's, it's really resounded with me. Uh, and this is, this is the quote. Uh, it's from a, a sermon, I think, called The Weight of Glory. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You know, and that's been a thought that I've been just juggling around in my mind for a while. We are far too easily pleased, far too easily satisfied with just the, the things of this world. I think even in our Christian lives, you know, we, we, we get saved and, well, that's enough, right? And, and, and I guess really it would be, but God offers so much more, right? It's not just a matter of, oh, we've got our, we've got our fire insurance where we're going to go to heaven one day. But no, God is offering us an abundant life right here and now. So instead of, of us desiring and pursuing that abundant life that God has for us, you know, we just go about our, our regular everyday life kind of much like we had been even before we became Christians, right? Maybe now we, we go to church and we slap one of those little fish stickers on our van or something like that. But for the most part, nothing changes. But God wants so much more for our lives. Uh, we've been looking uh, at Romans 12 too for the past uh, couple months as we've been going through this series. It says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. You know, if we could really just wrap our heads around that idea that God has a will for our lives that is good and pleasing and perfect, you know, that, that would change our lives, I think. God wants to transform us into a totally different person than the person that we were, and probably for most of us, even the person that we are. Uh, somebody who doesn't live just like they always used to, but someone who lives, well, a lot like Jesus would live. But if we don't intentionally enter into that, that transformational process, we're going to miss out on so much of what God has for us. Uh, and so, as I mentioned, over the summer, we've been looking at the discipleship process. And we kind of looked at the different stages, kind of just to, to set the background for us. Uh, so we kind of talked about, we start off being spiritually dead, per se, right? We kind of related this to the, the, uh, our physical growing up. Uh, so we start off being spiritually dead. We're, we're absolutely separated from God. We have no, no life in us, really. I mean, our, our physical bodies function, yes, but we're apart from God, the, the source and the, the creator of life. 
But through some miracle, God brings salvation to us in some way, shape, or form, and we accept him as our Savior. And at that point, we become alive, and we become spiritual infants. And at this stage of our, our discipleship, we really need a lot of help, just like a, an infant does. There's not much that an infant can do for themselves. They need people to, to take care of them, help them learn to grow, and start doing things for themselves. And, and that's very similar in our spiritual lives. When we first become Christians, we really need this, the body of believers to come along and help us uh, to grow and learn and, and begin the process of maturing. But as we do that, we become spiritual children, per se. Uh, and we begin feeding ourselves a little bit. We start maybe reading our Bibles. Uh, we're part of a, a church fellowship. We start growing in our knowledge of God. But of course, at that point, just like most children, everything still revolves around me, right? It's all about what God can do for me. And that's kind of our, our mindset in that, that spiritual childhood, per se. But eventually, we begin to, to grow up a little bit, and we realize that, you know, the world doesn't revolve around us. Uh, life isn't all about me, but it's about what I can do uh, for God. We, we, get the, we actually kind of go a little bit maybe overboard on that side of things. Instead of, uh, you know, the world revolving around me, we start, we want to do things for God. It's all about doing, doing, doing. And we're very involved in ministry, and we'll, we'll serve on committees, and we'll, you know, we'll do all those things. We, wanna, we almost want to prove our worth to God. We, we still haven't quite grasped our, our real identity in Christ. But then that kind of takes us into our, our final stage that we talked about. And I think on, on the chart that we had there, we had the making disciples and disciple makers. We kind of lumped them together and just being a, a fully mature, uh, fruit-producing believer. So this is a person who, who's starting to really understand who they are in Christ. That it's not about, you know, what they do for God. It's about what God has done for them. And just learning to be the person that God created them to be. Not to do all the things. I mean, that, that's part of it. But that's not what it's all about. It's about being the person that God created us to, to be and having that relationship with him. And of course, as we do that, we start producing fruit uh, in, in a couple of ways. One is, is we do start reproducing other believers. Uh, we can help lead them in their discipleship process. Uh, but we also start developing the fruit of the Spirit more than we've, we've ever really had. It's not like something we've, we're going to try to be more patient, but that just comes out of us. As we become more and more like Christ, all that fruit just comes out. We're more, we're more like Christ. We've got more love. We've got more joy. We've got more peace. All, all those fruits of the Spirit that it talks about in Galatians 5. And so now, as we've gone through that process of kind of looking at, oh, here's all the different stages, and maybe you can identify a little bit of where you might be. And of course, there's, there's all kinds of overlap and whatever. It's not a, you know, this isn't a, a biblical laid out. We didn't find this chart in the pages of the Bible. Just, this is just our way of helping us understand there's a process to growing up and maturing in Christ. But now the question is, well, well, how do we get then to that, that, that last stage? How are we, uh, how do we get to that stage and how do we stay living in that stage of being fully mature, fruit-producing believers? Well, that's what we want to look at kind of for the next, uh, I'm guessing about another seven weeks is what it's going to take us through. And, and to do that, I'm going to follow uh, an outline that I kind of found in a book. I don't want to claim this uh, little insight myself, uh, but I read a book called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship uh, by a guy named Peter Scazzaro. And, and he's got a, a good outline for how we can understand how this all puts together. And, and we'll go through kind of seven marks of healthy discipleship. Now, when you hear the title of that book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, you, you might kind of wonder, well, what, what does emotions have to do with discipleship? Now, I don't know if you guys grew up like me, kind of in a, maybe it's a Baptist type thing, but you kind of grew up with almost an aversion to emotions, right? Emotions are kind of seen 
at least suspiciously, if not negatively, right? Uh, maybe, maybe you've seen the, there's a little illustration called the, the fact, faith, feelings train. I think usually it's used to explain uh, how people, when they, they don't feel saved, it's kind of an assurance of salvation thing. They don't feel saved. Well, you got to look, don't let your feelings drive the train. Look at the facts. The, here's what the Bible says. Put your faith in the facts and the feelings will follow. Don't let the feelings drive the train is, is kind of the idea there. But I think we've kind of taken that concept and we've kind of carried it off into the rest of our lives as well. I know uh, just in, in some of our, our camp training, we're always very careful about, you know, we don't want to get kids to, to make an emotional response, right? Don't, I mean, emotions are very easily manipulated. You play the slow song and you get a few of the kids that are, they're starting to, to cry and weep and pretty soon everybody's having a revival. And, and, and that's, you know, maybe there's a place for that a little bit, but uh, our emotions are certainly a part of it, but we tend to to try to discount all the emotions, keep that stuff out of the way. Let's just let's just base our lives on on facts and things like that. But more and more as I'm growing older, I'm realizing that you know we're actually made to have emotions. We're made in the image of God, and God has emotions. I don't know if you've noticed this as you've read through your Bible. Particularly, you can see this in the life of Christ. He's got all, I mean, he's got, he's got joy, he's got sorrow, he's got uh, distress, uh, he's got anger, he's got sadness. All the emotions that, that we feel, we see in the person of Jesus Christ. So emotions in themselves are, are not bad things, right? They're, they're, uh, they're you know, neutral, really. It's how we respond to those emotions that sometimes get us into trouble. But emotions themselves are not bad things. They're just like the, they're like the, the, little warning lights in your car, right? They tell you what's going on in the engine, right? And so just like how, how physical pain tells us, oh, there's something wrong in our body, kind of that, that emotion stuff tells us what's going on in our soul, in our heart. Uh, there's a, a verse in Proverbs that you've probably heard, uh, Proverbs 4.23. It says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Now, the, the Bible has a lot to say about your heart, and it's not the, the little blood pumping muscle in your chest when it's talking about the heart. It's talking about, it's like the, the seat of the emotions, the core of your being, and, and that includes like your, your intellect and your will and your, and your motives and, and your emotions, all those sort of things. And this verse tells us to guard our heart because it determines the course of our life. And in fact, as you read through other parts of the scripture, we say that, you know, the things that you say, the stuff that comes out of your mouth, that comes from your heart. The motives for why you do what you do, whether they're good or bad, those motives come from the heart. Uh, the way we view ourselves and the way we view God, the way we view others and just see the world, that all is based out of our hearts. And, and so we can see why it's so important that we need to guard our hearts because from that, everything in our life comes, right? That determines the course of our lives. Now, being emotionally healthy means that we're paying attention and we're responding rightly to those warning lights about what's going on in our hearts. Because emotionally unhealthy Christians can be actually very, very destructive, both to themselves and to others as well. Uh, as I was reading through the book, he gave a few uh, pointed examples that I, I kind of could relate to. Um, some of the things that he mentioned were, you know, you could be, you could be a, a gifted preacher in a, in a church, but yet be an angry parent or, or a detached spouse. Uh, you could be a leader in your church, maybe an elder or a deacon, but yet be unteachable or insecure or, or unapproachable. 
Uh, you could just quote verse upon verse of, of the Bible, but yet still be critical and demeaning uh, and judgmental of others. You can tirelessly serve in all sorts of ministries, but yet be resentful and bitter towards others in your church. You know, these are all examples uh, of what we would call emotionally unhealthy believers, right? They're Christians still, but there's still some, some emotional growing up that they've yet to do. And I think probably all of us can relate to that, at least in some areas of our lives. I think all of us have a little bit of emotional growing up to do. But God wants to totally transform our lives, as we we're talking about in this verse. He doesn't want to just change our, our outward actions and appearances. He wants to change our heart, the, the stuff where all that stuff comes out of. Uh, recently, I've been reading a little bit about the brain, and I've uh, realized that we kind of have kind of two operating systems. Like, you know how your computer has the, the operating system? Sometimes you got a Mac running it or Windows or whatever. Our brains kind of have two operating systems uh, within them at once. There, first of all, there's the, the prefrontal cortex, and that's, that's kind of the thinking part of the brain, right? It's the logical part. It, it plans and it calculates and it, it processes all the facts. And sometimes it takes a long time for it to do all that, but it works through all that stuff and eventually comes up with a logical solution. That, that's the, the prefrontal cortex. That's a very important part of our brain. But there's another part of our brain uh, called the limbic system. And it kind of works a little bit more on autopilot. And it controls our, our emotions and our feelings. Uh, it doesn't really pay it too much attention to the facts. It worries about what experiences it's had in the past. That's kind of how it learns. That the prefrontal cortex, it gets its information from, from knowledge and facts and, and information. Whereas the limbic system, it looks at, this is what I've experienced, so here's the decisions I'm going to make. Now, uh, unfortunately, sometimes those two operating systems actually have conflicting beliefs and give us conflicting instructions. And this is maybe where Paul talks about in Romans. He says, you know, there, here's the things that I want to do, but I find I keep doing the things I don't want to do. That's kind of an explanation of these two systems that are kind of battling against each other. But the truth is, the things that we, we believe most deeply about who God is and about who we are and, and, and about our world, that all comes not from our, our prefrontal cortex, that's, not the, that's not, the, not the deepest beliefs. The deepest beliefs come from our, our limbic system. And this is probably the part of us that the, the Bible refers to as the heart. That's probably more what the, the Bible's talking about when he says, guard your heart, because that's what is going to determine the course of your life. And, and so just to give you an example of some of these, these conflicts, uh, there, there could be, let's say, the person who, who's thinking through the, the prefrontal cortex, they, they can read the Bible and they can say that God loves them and, and wants to forgive them. And they can say, yep, that is, that is solid logic. I, I, I mean, I trust the Bible. We, we've proven the Bible is true in, in every area. That has got to be true. But then the limbic system, it'll look back, not at the information that it just read, but maybe through some of its experiences that it's had in the past. And they might say, you know, I don't think, I don't think God could possibly love and forgive me because of all the things I've done. And so there's these two conflicting beliefs. And quite often it's that, that limbic system, that, that heart belief that will beat out the head belief and will act and live in that way. And this is where we kind of come into this whole discipleship thing. I think over the last, I don't know how long it would be, but in, our, in my generation, we've, we've gotten pretty good at teaching the, the prefrontal cortex 
about discipleship, right? We've given it the, the information. Here's, we're going to do a Bible study. We'll take a class. We'll, we'll, we'll look at our, our doctrine and our theology. We'll make sure we get all that stuff right. And we'll get all that information in our heads. And, and that's how we do discipleship. And, and that's absolutely necessary. Don't, don't hear me that I'm saying, oh, we shouldn't do that. No, that is, that is critical information. We have to have that. But equally critical to that process is that we also have to do some heart work as well. We have to learn not just through the knowledge of all that stuff, but through the experience as well. You know, we can't just read about bearing one another's burdens. We actually have to experience bearing one another's burdens. We can't just uh, know about forgiveness. We actually have to experience it for ourselves, for that to actually become part of who we are. It's kind of like the old uh, 4-H motto, to learn to do by doing. That's really what discipleship is all about. It's not about learn to do by knowing, it's about by doing. That's why I think when, when Jesus lived on earth and, and he had his, his disciples, he didn't just, you know, meet with them in a classroom every day for three years. No, he lived life with those guys. He, he experienced life with them. Certainly there was teaching in there, absolutely. But there's a lot of experiences that they went through. I mean, just to even think of, of all the stuff that they went through as Jesus went to the cross and, and his resurrection. What, a, what an experience that was. That was the life-changing experience, I think, uh, for them. And, and so we have to, to make sure that we're not just getting head knowledge, but we're actually getting heart knowledge, experiential knowledge. Uh, Jesus said uh, of the Pharisees, guys who had a lot of head knowledge about God, he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know, lots of knowledge about God, lots of head knowledge, but their hearts were far from him. And that's, that's not the kind of discipleship that changes lives. I think maybe Jonah in the Old Testament is maybe a good example of a guy who had the head knowledge, but somehow never made it to his heart, right? Uh, I mean, from all, appearance, all appearances, he was just a, you know, a fine Christian minister. I mean, he had a successful ministry. I mean, you look at the guy, even when he was running from God, he, he converted a whole boatload of guys. They were worshiping God at the end. He preached to the city of Nineveh. The whole city uh, repented and, and uh, changed their ways. So absolutely, a successful ministry, absolutely. But for some reason, even though he, he knew all that stuff about God, it didn't make it into his own heart. Uh, we read uh, in uh, Jonah chapter 4, just as after uh, the city repented and God changed his mind about bringing the destruction he promised. This is what it says in Jonah 4, 1 to 3. It says, This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. And so he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. I think Jonah is a, a textbook example of an emotionally unhealthy believer. Right? He had all this knowledge. He knew all about God's compassion and mercy and, and forgiveness. But none of that made it into his own heart, did it? He had absolutely no compassion, no patience, no love for the people of Nineveh. And that is not the kind of disciple that we want to be. That's not the kind of life transformation that we want to experience in our walk with God. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we need to have our hearts transformed to become like his. Uh, Romans 8, 29, uh, the first part of that verse says, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. 
Or, or the NIV puts it even more clear. He says, for, the, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's intention for us is that we are to be conformed to the image of his son. That's not, to, no, not a physical thing to, to look like Jesus or anything like that. Not even to act like Jesus per se, but to be like Jesus, to be conformed to his likeness, to have the same kind of heart that God has. You know, if we're only doing religious activities and, you know, doing Christian things without the heart of Christ, it's, it's useless. It's pointless, really. Actually, Paul talks about this exact thing uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. You know, discipleship isn't simply learning more knowledge about God or even doing all the right Christian things. But it's having God transform your heart to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. So, how does that happen? Well... That's what we're going to talk about for the next seven weeks. Uh, and we're going to go through those seven marks of healthy discipleship. Stuff that is not just head knowledge, but hopefully experiential. Stuff that will actually transform our hearts little by little to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do uh, a little bit of a small group uh, study going through this book and kind of following the sermon series with uh, some of you guys, because this is experiential stuff, right? You can't just sit in the pews and, and learn it in your head and then, you know, come back and learn another a little bit more later. You actually have to go home and you got to live this stuff out. So even if you're not part of the group, hopefully you'll be able to find ways that you can apply this. I'm, I'm sure that you will. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited for what God is going to do in and through us as we learn to transform not just our, our outward actions and, and become looking like good Christians, but we actually change our hearts, those, that inner part of us that really has the same heart of God, the same kind of love, the same kind of compassion, the same kind of all that stuff that he has, because that's the, the end goal. Now, for those of you guys who, who like to do homework type stuff. I know I haven't really given you too much to go home and, and do and think on, but let me give you two things that you can just think about for today, and then we'll be done. First of all, I would encourage you to pay attention to your emotions. Now, this is probably, I don't know if this is weird for you. This is weird for me. I am mid-40s, and I am learning now at this stage that I have emotions, and I should pay attention to them. So I'm going to encourage you to join with me in this little journey and pay attention to your emotions this week. And the question is, what do your emotions tell you about the state of your soul? Right? Because they're like the warning lights on your vehicle. When you feel enraged, what does that tell you about what's going on in your heart? Or when you're joyful, what does that tell you about what's going on in your heart? I'd encourage you to pay attention this week to what you're feeling and see what does that reflect about what's going on in my soul. Second thing that you can do. When you experience one of those, those strong emotions, uh, whatever that happens to be, I'd have you ask yourself, what does this teach me about the God whose image I am created in? Right? God has emotions, and he created us in his image to have those emotions. So what is, when I'm feeling this way, what does that teach me about who God is? 
right? And, and, and you, I don't know what, your, your, what kind of answers you'll come up with in that, but I, I think it'd be a good process for us just to think about, you know, if we're created in God's image and he made us to have these crazy things called emotions, what does this teach us about who God is? So this will be a little bit of homework that you guys can do for this week. Uh, and then next week, come back again. Uh, we'll start working our way through those seven marks of healthy discipleship. And I trust that God will, will do just what we're hoping he will do. And he will transform our hearts and we'll get to become more and more like him. So on that note, I don't think we have a closing song. I never checked about that. I don't think we do. Nope. So we'll pray and then we'll be dismissed into our week. Dear God, we thank you so much for your incredible love for us. And it's just amazing to think that we are created in your image with, with that inner soul, that heart, the, the will. We're not robots. We can make choices. And you've given us emotions to tell us what's going on inside and, and all that stuff. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, God. We just thank you for, for who you are in making us this way. But help us understand that a little bit, God, uh, as we quite often ignore some of those things in our lives. Help us to pay attention and see what it is that you're trying to say to us through things like how we feel and stuff like that. Maybe this is stuff that we should have learned in kindergarten, but somehow missed that class. But God, I pray that you'd keep working in each of our hearts, helping us uh, to know uh, what things are going on in our hearts and in our souls that aren't right, things that you want us to change so that we can become more and more like you. God, we're so thankful that you, you uh, predestined us. You chose us to be conformed to the image of your son. What a, a privilege that is. And, and uh, God, pray that we would not be far too easily pleased and just live through this next week just like we always have. But may we be able to, to start experiencing the, the infinite joy that you offer us by living life with you. Living life kind of like you in the ways that you would. Help us to experience all that this week, God. We just thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for this church family that we can live and learn together. Pray that we'd be able to experience amongst uh, each other all those things, the, the things like mercy and forgiveness, uh, celebration, joy, uh, all those things. Help us experience those things together. Uh, we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives and what you will continue to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>